if you're bootstrapped, there's obviously a ton of positives with bootstrapping. Um, but what you're rewarded for in bootstrapping is your kind of frugality um, in the sense of how do you do as much as possible with little cash. And once you kind of go the venture route, a lot of that switches and you're more or less rewarded for your ambition and kind of going big. Initiating launch sequence. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Ready for Launch, the show where I talk to founders about the process of getting their business off the ground. My guest today is Matt Barr. Matt, Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, looking forward to it. I'd love for you to get us rolling by answering, what is your business called and what do you think is unique about it? Yeah, our business is called Fairing. Uh, We're a survey solution for e-commerce merchants. Uh, And the unique thing about Fairing is we're essentially in the process of reinventing how surveys are served. Um, so surveys to us are kind of this antiquated monolith of questions. We sometimes jokingly call them interrogations internally of anywhere from three to 50 questions. Um, and what we're doing at Faring is we're essentially decoupling the questions from one another, which allows us to do really cool things, serve questions over time, serve questions dynamically. Uh, Ian can get a very different list of questions or call them a survey if we want. Uh, than Matt. Um, so that's really the unique thing that we're excited to kind of keep pushing forward to and is kind of the North Star uh, for our product vision. And why is that so important to kind of break away from this, this monolith of questions and, and change how you're serving up those questions? Yeah, so we're currently in the era of, kind of privacy first and all this click and Third-party data is getting harder to track, and it's making making it very difficult for businesses to scale. And one of the data sources that have always been around that almost got forgotten in the era of kind of Facebook arbitrage, call it, is voice of the customer, talking to customers. Um, and the voice of the customer has always been done in a very kind of a research corner where you would do a survey, you'd go analyze it. Uh, We hear all the time someone uploads it to Excel, they join it with another data source, they spend weeks kind of building this report and uh, sharing a PDF thereafter with the team as far as what they learned. And what we're doing and why it's so important for kind of from a product perspective for us to untangle the idea of a survey is we're looking to build something that's more always on. So we think of faring very analogous, funny enough to like Google Analytics. Like Google Analytics tracks clicks. We track question responses. So we kind of view the world differently than most, if not all, survey companies. And we're really trying to build a data source more so than a research company. Um, And the first step in building a data source is making sure that everyone has an opportunity to answer kind of all of the questions. Where if you think of uh, classic surveys, if a customer of yours drops off after question three through 10, it's very difficult to go get the responses for questions four through 10, for example. Um, So what we're doing is kind of decoupling this, allowing questions to get answered over time, which then transforms what we're building at Faring more so into a data source, like a pipeline of data analogous to GA or let's say segment or any of these other tools that ingest data versus your traditional kind of Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey. And how are you seeing your customers use these surveys? You know, for like for people who aren't in the e-commerce space, what 
what kinds of things are brands sending out to their customers and what are they trying to learn from that? Oh, for sure. Our wedge is undoubtedly attribution. Um, so funny enough, the attribution survey, which simply is how did you hear about XYZ brand has been around for a very long time. Uh, you'll see it kind of hard coded into forms all across the internet, especially now that I'm calling it out. Uh, and what we like our wedge was essentially productizing that. Um, so no one really at the time was building a company at scale that asks this simple attribution question. Um, fast forward to today, we have about 2,500 customers. We serve about, it's like five, 600,000. How did you hear about us questions a day at this point? Um, so that's very much our wedge. So that's like by far the most common question asked. I think 99% of new customers who sign up with Faring get started with that question. Uh, and then we group the other, like we group all of our questions into the essentially four buckets. So attribution is one, and there's a few other questions there. Uh, when did you first hear about us? What led you to the store for kind of more of that legacy brand? Um, the second category is just personalization. Uh, so with the, within the e-commerce world, the easiest way to see if a question uh, or, or codify a question as personalization is like, could you pipe it to your ESP, to your email service provider, and then send that customer a better targeted email based on their preferences? So it's a question like, how would you describe yourself, for example? The third question type that we really encourage, which might be relevant to you and your background, is uh, questions around that help solve rather conversion rate optimization, CRO. So these are questions like, how was your shopping experience? Uh, anything that you could essentially ask the customer, learn from them from an experience perspective, and then go add what they said to a to-do list and make your site convert higher or just a better experience overall. And then the fourth, cat fourth category is kind of a catch-all. Um, all, all of these questions and categories are technically research. Um, but the fourth category, we just group everything else into just general research. And these are questions like age, gender, demographic questions, anything that kind of helps you better understand the customer holistically um, that might not be kind of grouped into one of the previous three categories. Gotcha. Are there different ways of these showing up? Like, do you have different methods for sending out these questions to customers? Like, are some getting them through email? Are some popping up whilst you're on the site? And are those like, yeah. and uh, you know, are those sprinkled out across, like, if someone only gets the question three of 10, like you describe, do you then try and reach them in a different way after that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So 99% of our questions today are served on order confirmation pages. Um, so after you just, I saw you were at Lululemon, after you buy something at Lululemon, your order is confirmed. And then there's the question lives directly on that page front and center. And that's been our uh, kind of core focus today, really, because it's how we got started, because you could very easily join the e-commerce data with the survey response data, like in that moment of time. And the more important thing on that page is the customer is essentially super focused. Did my order go through? It's kind of this joy of the transaction. And what that allows us to do is get extremely high completion rates. Um, so average across our uh, platform, it kind of ranges between 40 and 60% of customers submit that first question. Um, so it's five, six, 10x higher than what you traditionally see in your general kind of polling research where you're expecting anywhere between five, if you're lucky, and 10% of customers are completing the question. Um, so that's a very core aspect of our product. We're exactly what you said. If they don't complete it here, we're going to start asking them in another location. Um, that's exactly what we're working on. 
Um, so we're introducing this concept of services in the next month or two um, that will allow you to ask questions essentially anywhere where we can identify the user. So email, SMS, landing pages, et cetera, that's all coming and it's going to be essentially dynamic based on the rules of our core feature, which is called question stream. So we're super, super excited about that. It's like our first foray beyond the order status page. Uh, we're expecting completion rates to drop a little bit, uh, but definitely will help our customers and kind of introduce a whole slew of new use cases. Mm. I'm curious how that, what, you know, you talked about reaching out with email, SMS. I'm curious how, do you have to get separate permission from the customer to use their contact information to reach out or like are you kind of bundled into the shoppers the shops you know terms of service when they check out and like once once the shop has a customer's email you're allowed to go and ping them with whatever yeah so we don't actually want to send the emails or the sms messages um we very much just want to provide the tools for our customers to do so so the first iteration will simply be us generating dynamic landing pages that then can be linked to in SMS and email. Uh, so that's kind of step one. Uh, we hear all the time that customers, whether they're using Clavio or Postscript or Attentive, uh, like they don't want multiple different tools, especially on the SMS side, like a cust an end customer doesn't want to get messages from two or three different numbers from the same brand. So Everything that we're building, we're trying to stay away from that. It allows us, from a product perspective, to not go as deep into some of the infrastructure needed to do that, which allows us to focus on other things. Um, so it's really it's positive for us, and all that permissioning can be done kind of outside of fairing. Yeah, it makes sense. The, the, the brand owns the communication. You just give them the tools to deliver that effectively. Exactly. That's super helpful. I'd love to take a step back in time now uh, and talk a bit about more about your journey and like what you were doing before you started this company and like how that led you to, to where you are today. Yeah. So I essentially started my career uh, as a merchant in e-commerce. So back in 2010, 2011, uh, helped start essentially a, like a consortium of uh, online retailers as they were referred to back then. Um, kind of like an advisement group. Um, so got kind of very deep in e-com very early on. Um, after that, I uh, was the first operating employee at a headphone company here in New York uh, called Master and Dynamic. was very fortunate there. I got to see like, see and certainly own a, a large aspect of that business from, I think my title when I left was director of digital and logistics, which is kind of two things you often don't see together. Um, and with those two titles, funny enough, I left that company in 2016, very much enamored with same-day delivery. Uh, we could talk about some of those mistakes in a second, but at the time, it was Postmates, uh, Postmates API. It was Uber Rush. There was this whole slew of companies popping up uh, that were very much like API first that allowed you to tap into these networks of couriers to move product from A to B. And at the headphone company at Master and Dynamic, we were one of the first e-commerce companies to integrate with Postmates API. Uh, so we built in uh, essentially an internal Shopify or I think it's called a private Shopify app um, that if the user was in a certain array of zip codes, uh, we simply showed them, hey, get your order in two hours or less. 
uh, and tapped into Postmates API to do that. And it was, it was super cool. Like, and I think that's kind of as far as it goes in the sense that we had customers, uh, clicking by and getting their headphones in two hours. It was a premium product, premium delivery, premium delivery experience, et cetera. And after we launched that, it was super intriguing to me that like we, it was very difficult to drive volume through it. Um, so same day delivery, like that's like really needs scale. Like from an infrastructure perspective at the headphone company, you need to drive enough orders to make it worth kind of owning this piece of code within your stack. And we were doing like one order maybe every other day, if I recall. Uh, and at the time, I was like, how do we increase this? Um, like, this is the future of commerce, et cetera. We were doing more volume in the Apple store in Soho than we were through our e-com site. And left that company in uh, what the summer of 2016, really just to think of ways to solve this. And this is kind of where the, the 18th, 18 to 24 months of like attempting to find product market fit in the same base space. Um, we started off as a uh, marketplace, essentially type in your zip code, find products available for same day powered by, and we power all the delivery using kind of a slew of delivery APIs. Um, that was never really kind of got that off the ground. Frankly, we built an iOS app, launched it in the app store, and I think shut it down like two weeks later because it was like, how are we actually going to drive volume through this thing? Um, then we pivoted to a B2B SaaS, essentially just allowing merchants, we worked with a few notable brands in New York of like powering their same day and kind of the infrastructure on site, like localizing the front end, grabbing the GOIP. If a user's in New York, show them this same day, get it now experience. And the the nail and the metaphorical coffin there was like, we realized at one point that more customers were using UPS, were selecting UPS ground than they were selecting same day. And that was like a big, like at the time, like this is the best delivery method. Why would anyone choose something else? And what we quickly learned is like same day delivery is very much like food delivery. Like you have to be there. You have to essentially grab the bag because it's oftentimes not in a sealed box from the courier. And that delivery experience was not optimal for someone who wanted something delivered to their house, but was at work, um, for example. So we were in the process of pivoting. This was uh, probably around January of 2018, and we're still trying to find product market fit. We raised about 100, 100 grand or so at the time just to like give us a little bit of cushion to continue figuring this out. And one of those customers, this company called Kara, which is a bad company in New York, uh, who we were like very close to. Um, my background in e-com was helpful to them to kind of solve some of their business problems. And Aaron, their one of their co-founders, was having trouble with attribution. Uh, they were doing a ton of influencer activations in New York, and he was like, "We're getting all this direct traffic. Like our volume is going up, but we have no idea where it's coming from." Um, so I suggested to him, "Hey, just go out a survey on your order confirmation page." Uh, use a Google form. It won't look great, but at least you'll get some data. And we had that live for about probably four to six weeks or so. And the response rate was super high. But but the thing that Aaron was always kind of upset with that solution is it wasn't connected to the e-commerce data. Uh, so he'd get a really good response like, hey, it was great meeting Aaron last week. And he'd be like, who submitted this? I'm like, I honestly have no idea. Like we could look at the timestamp and the order and kind of cross our fingers, but there's no like direct relationship to the order. Um, so that was really where the idea of fairing was born. Uh, we used to be called Enquire was our first name for the first three years, frankly. Um, 
and we built the first prototype in I think about two and a half, three weeks, launched it on their site. Um, and it was all, it was never meant to be kind of what it is today, frankly. It was one of those things that I was like, oh, this will be great if it, imagine if it generated $5,000 a month kind of thing. Um, and for the first two or so years, it was, it was exactly that. It was a side project. Kurt, my co-founder and I almost took full-time jobs once. Uh, and then in early 2020 with the, when the pandemic hit, uh, things started to very much turned there in the sense of uh, e-commerce was booming and we started to see some really massive growth. Um, and that at the same time was the, uh, we raised about another 75 K with the uh, pitch of like, Hey, let us go full time. I think at the time we were generating $2,000 a month in revenue, honestly, without really doing anything. Um, and it was like, can we raise a little bit of money, focus on this thing and go kind of full in. So that's really where that, that was kind of the journey from, Getting started in the e-com, being on the e-com side for six, seven years, moving into SaaS, having a kind of horrible time trying to find product market fit, um, no revenue coming in for almost two years is, is quite daunting. Um, and then I'd say in early 2020 is really recognized that we had product market fit in the sense of we were just scaling without doing anything, which is such a, a good place to be. Um, the Shopify app store definitely helped with that, but we were really solving a problem that a lot of these sophisticated merchants were trying to solve with these crazy, crazy priced kind of other tools. I was like, Oh, I could pay. I think we were $10 at the time. It was like, I could pay Enquire kind of now faring $10 a month and just get a distribution of my channels and where customers are coming from with a pretty high degree of accuracy. Like that's a pretty good deal. Um, so that's, that's kind of the journey. We can kind of jump into more of the recent stuff, but that was the, the path to finding product market fit and building something and bringing it to market. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't, wasn't an overnight mm -hmm. success and kind of had to fail in the same day space to really understand the concept of product and distribution and all the fun stuff that goes into SaaS. Yeah, that's, that's a good story. You know, you obviously started in the same day delivery space. And I'm wondering, looking back, because you mentioned that for the headphone brand, you you were getting one order every other day for same day delivery. And do you think, like, in retrospect, you could have seen that as a signal that maybe, because you, you later on then realized people still weren't choosing it when you tried to launched it on other brands like was the only one a day every other day a signal that it wasn't going to be a sustainable business or do you think that was completely separate and i ask this because it's interesting that like both of these ideas the same day delivery and the um attribution of orders like they came from a problem you were seeing like in a business but one was significantly more successful than the other at early on yeah, I think I think I definitely could have seen some signal. Uh, I'm sure I looked into that, but the the issue or kind of the hypothesis I had was like it was less of a signal of demand and more of a signal of awareness was like my initial hypothesis around why can't we scale this? Um, so yeah, I think it's it definitely could have been there at the time. Frankly, it's just. I was naive and much younger than I am today. Um, but a lot of it was just like the hype around this vertical was so great um, that this was like, if you went to any e-commerce conference, everyone was like, how do we do same day delivery? Like Amazon Prime now had just launched, I think in New York. And um, 
there was a ton of startup capital going into this vertical. So to me, it was less of, is, will this be the future? And more or less like this is the future. And I think what I quickly learned kind of moving into Enquire is funny enough, like I have a ton of P&L experience on the e-com side. And I should have really thought about that from the kind of software delivery side because a P&L of a straight software company looks much better than that of a delivery kind of, or any company that touches logistics um, just from a margin perspective. Um, you just need so much more scale to hit um, hit that critical point. Um, so I think that's like, if I think about our business today with call it 96, 97% margins versus kind of the delivery business where we were arbitraging delivery and all of these things, like if I know what I know now, that would have definitely gone into the conversation and possibly looked for a different product to build or a different problem to solve. Um, but at the time it was uh, super exciting, frankly, um, but definitely a, a bit naive and frankly, a very good, 18 months of learning in the sense of how does product market fit feel and scale feel and all those other things. Yeah. What was your, cause you, you looked for product market fit with a few different ideas. How, how did you decide which ideas weren't re- like, were never going to get product market fit versus the ones where you thought maybe it just needs more time. You know, how do you, how do you make that judgment call for yourself as you changed through these different ideas? Yeah. In, in retrospect, when you have product market fit, you know you have product market fit. And if you've never experienced product market fit before, then you don't know what it feels like, frankly. Um, so that, that's definitely a good learning. I, I talk to a ton of people in, the, in this space as far as like velocity and product market fit. It could be also how you're positioning the product. There could be a, a ton of things that go into getting that scale. So that's kind of one thing in retrospect of like, when you've built something people want, like you will have virality, like people will tell other people that this is how I'm solving this problem. Um, So that was definitely, it's a something that most likely has to be learned in the sense of going through it. Um, And really from the same day delivery side, we were really just talking to customers like endlessly. Um, so we built really good relationships with all of our early beta users. And frankly, part of that was due to my experience in e-commerce and I could talk to them all day about their business. And then at the end of the conversation, kind of pry them on same day and delivery and all the aspects of increasing completion rate by getting products to fa- faster through the customer. So it was a very easy transition and it was very similar to, to fairing the early days, like the first, there was obviously some organic growth, but the first 20 to 30 customers for fairing were solely based on me getting introduced to e-commerce kind of founders and operators in New York, grabbing coffee with them and really just like, Hey, you're about to launch your business. You should talk to Matt. Like he's helped a ton of companies do this. And most of those early customers were based on those simple kind of conversations. Um, and then at the end of coffee, after we spent a half hour talking about their business, it was like, hey, you should also download this very inexpensive Shopify app before you go live or do it right now kind of thing. And that was very helpful for us kind of bringing this to market and kind of hustling our way to, frankly, only like four or $500 in MRR, like obviously does not scale, but was super helpful in getting those early customers. So have always, I think we've always done a pretty good job of listening to customers. We're doing an even better job right now. Uh, but that's definitely the key to, to navigating and finding product market fit. And frankly, I wish we stopped the same day stuff maybe a year earlier. But that learning in that last year is probably helping us today. 
Mm. When you mentioned that your the way you listen to customers has has improved for people who are for other people who are thinking of building a business like how should they go about listening to customers you know what have you learned that's helped you improve the way you do that and, and like how has your process changed yeah our process has changed dramatically in the sense of like we actually track like every customer request at this point um we used to be in the camp of like we were just a two person team for a very long time uh, in the sense of like, we'll track the requests that come up most often. Um, and those will float to the top and we almost don't even need to write them down because so many people will be asking for these things that we'll know what to build. Um, and that was kind of our, our thought. Part of it was we were such a small team. It's like, we can't build everything today. Um, how do we build the things that matter most? And now that our team has grown, we're, 13 now uh tracking all these requests is important and what we're seeing is like customers who asked for something maybe 18 months ago that request is actually super relevant today because um, maybe the market's changed or how people use our product has changed and it's very helpful to know like oh xyz customer asked for this now we could follow up with them and kind of close the loop and have a much better product rollout strategy and delight our customers hopefully a little bit sooner than 18 months uh by tracking these things um so that was like i think we were using Airtable at one moment like there was never like a really central place for tracking feature requests and feedback and now we do it directly in the database which has been great we have a little kind of admin area where we can add feature requests and then it's connected to the shop we can analyze hey what's the size of merchants requesting certain features how do we want to prioritize these things so it's been super helpful long term and we're still like very early uh in kind of this journey of listening at scale as i say um but that's kind of that's how it's changed we're we're starting to manage this concept, even a backlog and a ton of things to just start. And part of it's just the resource standpoint from an engineering standpoint, we can just build so much, so much faster than we've ever able, been able to do before. Um, so that's really all it is at, at, at the two person small scale, like, and even the same day stuff, that was just me talking to customers <laughs> endlessly. Um, wasn't necessarily even documenting it. It was just further refining the mental model of the problem space that we were really focused on. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you know, mid pandemic, you'd, you'd launched Inquire through like that one successful customer. How did that grow from a two person team at the start to this 13 person team now? And like, at what points did you decide, yeah, now we're ready to bring on more people? Yeah, so there's there's been kind of two step functions in the business since then. Uh, the first happened, so that was early 2020. Um, we scaled to, I think we ended that year at like 700 customers or so. Um, and in 2021, we were still a two-person team, uh, early 2021. Uh, and we just like were getting inundated with requests from customers. Um and at the time, like we were working with some very large customers and like scale of a lot of these, it's, it's something I worry about with a lot of these Shopify apps is once you start working with kind of these very large scale merchants, things start to get slower and you really need to improve kind of the backend aspect of your, of your application. So in early 2020, we were like, okay, let's get, we have some really good virality. Um, the network is really strong in e-commerce. Like let's get some uh, really good other kind of operators on the cap table. Um, so we raised, uh, about 450 K from a ton of like in market 
uh, angels. Um, so uh, founders of Postscript, uh, people from Recharge, like a lot of people in network in the e-commerce kind of enablement part. And the pitch was really much like, we're, we have a ton of traction right now. Like we need to scale the team. Um, and at the time, like our North Star was still like, we're building a commerce product. Um, and in the summer of 2021, that's when things started to shift. Um, so we started getting inbound from non-commerce. Um, so uh, through, an, through an agency that was working with DoorDash, for example, it was like, hey, they would love the functionality that Enquirer now. Now, Faring has built. Um, and that's when uh, it was the B2B SaaS, a couple of B2B SaaS companies reached out and kind of a light bulb went on in our head as being like, okay, what we've built is not commerce specific. This could kind of, it's industry agnostic or vertical agnostic. Um, and with that, we're like, well, if we want to build a kind of large vertical agnostic company, like we need more capital. Um, this is no longer kind of an, an angel quasi bootstrap business. This is very much in line with the venture business. Um, and that's when we decided to actually go raise the venture round. In Q4 of 2021, we raised $4.5 million, um, really with kind of this pitch of like, we're starting in commerce and we're moving beyond. And we're starting to work on some of those things uh, internally today. Um, but what that capital allowed us to do, I kind of view two things. Like if you're bootstrapped, there's obviously a ton of positives with bootstrapping. Um, but what you're rewarded for in bootstrapping is your kind of frugality um, in the sense of how do you do as much as possible with little cash. And once you kind of go the venture route, a lot of that switches and you're more or less rewarded for your ambition and kind of going big. And one of the things that always drove us crazy when we were still that quasi bootstrap company is like we couldn't hire the people that we really wanted to hire because they were just too expensive. And that that obviously switched when you go the venture route and you could start saying yes to some of these super talented people that you couldn't before. Um, so that's kind of been our journey as far as, okay, we need some scale, we need some capital to help grow and kind of fix some of these, uh, not fix, but optimize some of these problems we're having as we're scaling. And hey, the TAM that we're kind of swimming in, we, we think we've been swimming in a lake and Hey, we've actually been swimming in this very large ocean. Um, so that's kind of been our journey from a from a capital perspective, which very much dictates our ability to hire. Uh, so we're still still very much pragmatic and conservative with some of the cash that we've raised, which is going to start to change soon. Um, but that's kind of been the journey is from a from a capital and headcount perspective. How did you choose who your like what role your first hire would be? Uh, it was all, it was very much on the engineering side. Um, so uh, we needed help executing from a product perspective is really where the, where the focus was just a one person engineering team. Uh, and my co-founder is extremely experienced. He's like 20 plus years of, kind of full stack engineering experience, um, but we really just needed help to execute and frankly, to give him someone to, talk to to solve problems because um, I am as technical as uh, one might be without being technical. Um, a few kind of boot camp experiences, but not someone that can help architect a platform. Um, so our, our first two hires, frankly, were uh, additional engineers to really build out that side of the product. Where did you, we kind of skipped over earlier where your co-founder came from uh like how did you meet and how did you decide to go into business together 
Yeah, he, I was kind of doing some, uh, call it co-founder dating back in uh, 2016 when I first met him. Um, but he was the founding CTO of a company in New York called Hello Alfred, uh, which was essentially this like in-home butler service. They're, they're still around today and they've pivoted a bit. But uh, he was their founding CTO, built their initial kind of stack there. Uh, and left after a few years and was kind of just exploring things. We definitely did like the kind of one foot in, one foot out for the first few months. Uh, and then in January 2017, when we kind of incorporated the company, uh, is when kind of we really got an office and started working full time together. Um, so it's been, it's scary to think that it's been six or so years uh, since we met, but we have a, a extremely good working relationship. So it's, it's, yeah, it's been very few co-founder, if any, kind of co-founder conflicts that you hear quite often these days. I'm guessing there isn't an app for this co-founder dating, but <laughs> what do you uh, like? What do you look for? How do you know what makes a good co-founder if you haven't founded a company before? Yeah, I like. I was literally just optimizing for someone that I knew I'd get along with. Frankly, I think all my like I met Kurt the first time I met Kurt was over, I think a beer <laughs> um, and just tried to like share about the problem that I was interested in solving. And I think what he was excited to work with me is I was very much pitching to him the problem more so than the opportunity in the sense. And as an engineer, engineers like to solve problems. Um, so that was where a lot of our initial kind of call it traction together of working together was about how I was addressing what I was trying to solve in the market. Um, more so the alternative, like I just want to build a business kind of thing. Um, so I, I probably met with like eight to 10 technical possible co-founders. And obviously a lot, some of them didn't work out and um, other people just wanted to take full-time jobs and drive then jump right into a kind of super, super early stage. Um, but yeah, I was really just trying to optimize for, can I work with this person? Like this could be a five, 10, frankly, 15 year journey. Uh, is this someone that I kind of want in my corner during that whole time? Did you have ways to test that? You know, was that just through actually trying to uh, start the company or <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah, no, there was no, like, I feel like early on I would have seen uh, possibly signs that this wasn't going to work out, but I think early on we got along very well. Um, so there was no, there was no even like take a step back and be like, is this going to work out? It was more or less like, Oh, we're, we're developing a professional relationship and uh, a friendship as well that. Yeah. Maybe not really even question that. You've mentioned a few times, you know, you were called inquire, you're now called fairing. And I've certainly seen you post a few times on LinkedIn about like, what is a fairing? Like, do people understand that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to hear the story. Like what, at what point did you think we need to rebrand, we need to rename, and like where did that come from, and, and what does that journey look like? Yeah, so we, uh, the same day delivery company, funny enough, was called Hodi, H O D I, and uh, it loosely translates to today in Latin. Uh, and when we launched the survey product, it was actually called Hodi Post Purchase Service, um, really just because we're not like Kurt and I are, my co founder and I are very quantitative people we're not we're not we don't we don't think in the the branding side of things um and 
Hody didn't really make sense for a post-purchase survey company. So a few months after we launched it, I, I literally turned to Kurt and was like, how does Enquire sound? Um, and frankly, most likely just doing some, some quick Googles for questions or anything that was related. Um, and there was no direct survey product uh, called Enquire in the market. Um, so we were Enquire uh, for a bit. We, we then re, didn't really rebrand, but we technically renamed to Enquire Labs. Um, one word. Um, and the reason behind there is like, it was very difficult to get a trademark for Enquire um, for kind of a SaaS application. And even with the rebrand to Enquire Labs, like there was never really a brand. Like what does Enquire mean? Like even from an aesthetic perspective, like what is the, what is the framework that we can use to push the brand forward? Um, so that was uh, kind of post fundraise, and in the summer of 2022, it was like, well, if we're going to rebrand, um, we should do so as soon as possible. And the thought behind there is like we were still, and we still very much today, but we very much operate in the Shopify ecosystem. And rebranding when you're in an ecosystem is much easier than if you're kind of vertical agnostic um, because the channels in which to talk to customers and prospects are, are very controlled. So that was our thought process of like, if we're going to do this, we should do this today um, or as soon as possible rather. And so that was kind of like, okay, we're doing this kind of thing. Um, and the rebrands, uh, a member of our team, who's essentially our, our head of comms, actually came up with the name Farron. And we went through a, a slew of names. Uh, I think there was like 15 or 20 options on the table, and we always would find a reason not to go with one. And then Faring came along, and it has a very good metaphor, like almost a perfect metaphor for what we're building in the digital space, uh, in the physical space. So a Faring is anything that can be added to a service to make it more aerodynamic. Um, so, uh, Fairings exist on airplanes. They're very popular on motorcycles, F1 cars, uh, race cars, rather. Uh, so it's kind of in this world of increasing speed. And we love this metaphor in the sense of like fairing, like our survey product, our data capture product is essentially a fairing. So it's like, what can we capture in this moment in time that allows you to kind of operate and scale your business faster? Um, so that's really where the brand came from. We've like started to lean into it a little bit more. It's like super fun for me, frankly, and a few members of our team kind of being kind of F1 car people <laughs> um, and some really fun kind of brand activations we're planning to do in the future. Uh, but that was really the process. And now we have like, we have a logo <laughs> and we have a uh, color palette and all the fun things that come with a brand and we're going to start using, we're currently redesigning our entire SaaS application, we're going to start using a lot of those things in the product. So that's been the journey. Uh, we definitely, frankly, need to lean into it more than we have. Uh, I still get asked, like, are you a competitor to Enquire? Funny enough, which means we need to do a little bit better job there. But overall, it's been a really fun experience. And I think the whole team is super excited with the new brand name. Have you ever tried replying yes to that question of whether you're a competitor <laughs> to Enquire? Uh, I have not. Um, it's usually a, a disgruntled, we are the same company. We need to do a better job with the rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why you're probably starting to see more of us just talk about the kind of cool aspects of fairings and less so of our products. Um, really just to kind of hit, hit the brand home and allow people to know, like, I think it's important from a brand perspective 
that our customers and prospects like know what a fairing is beyond just simply us because um, it'll help them kind of position us and build this mental model of what we're looking to build in the future. Mm-hmm. Did you already know this word because of your F1 uh, interest? No. Or like, was there a deep process of discovery to get, I'm like curious how you came up with these like 10 to 15 names originally. Yeah, we were kind of looking, we had this uh, Venn diagram esque visualization of like, okay, what are the, uh, and I don't even remember what the core categories were. Like one was speed and scale. Um, and like, what are words that fit into both of these categories? Um, so I'm not even going to share any of the other brand names. Um, I'll let Mitch or, or Comsky do that. Uh, but that that really was the process of, okay, how do we find a, a word, a brand name that helps kind of tell the story of fairing? Um, and the issue that we kept finding is like really around ownership. It's like, if we're going to rebrand, we need to be able to own the word. And funny enough, like fairing, our, our biggest hesitation with fairing was the fact that it ended with ING. It had nothing, like literally that was our biggest hesitation. Like, can we, are we okay with having a brand name that ends with it? Which is not very popular in the SaaS world. Um, but every other box it checked. Like, can we own first page of Google? Like, can we own social domains? Like, is there any other SaaS company that we can be confused with? So like an issue from a trademark perspective. And like the answer to all of those questions was no. Um, so it started checking like every box and then there was this metaphor on top of it. So that was really the process of, of the decision. It took about, I think, two and a half weeks uh, internally for us to kind of give it the green light uh, once we all, once it was presented. Um, and then it's kind of been off to the races ever since. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. A perfect uh, setup for my next question. Are you going to, is part of the brand going to be to introduce any of that language around, you know, the F1 world and kind of seep it in um, or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we, I, I don't know if we'll integrate it directly into the product, um, but we use it for like, we have a new partner program coming out in the next few weeks that uses a very analogous word from that world. <laughs> Um, so we definitely want to continue to seep it in and it'll just make us more memorable, frankly, um, and tell a really fun brand story. Uh, but right now, like we have our, our core features called question stream and that was frankly called question stream before fairing, but there's probably a way to incorporate that. Um, but I think we were super surprised. I put on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, uh, just the simple question, do you know what a fairing is? Um, and I think there was like a hundred 40 responses or so and it was 50 50 which was like super part part of that is like we're doing a good job educating the market or uh, which is probably a, a small percentage of them or like more people than we expected already knew what a fairing was um so it, it's funny whenever i ask it in like a webinar in some kind of presentation there's always like one motorcycle nut who's like of course i have a motorcycle and it doesn't have a fairing kind of thing um <laughs> so uh yeah pleasantly surprised but also kind of excited on the prospects of what we can do with it Mm -hmm. awesome thanks what have you you know you've taken this company from one customer to to thousands and and grown the team kind of 10x what challenges have you faced in terms of like skills you've had to learn that have changed as the company has scaled yeah i think the a lot of what I was doing on the merchant side had, had crossover, um, which was very helpful just from like a 
modeling and P&L perspective. Um, I think a lot of what I learned, especially when it was just Kurt and I, was just around like products. Um, so I, I would say I'm like, any like actual engineer would laugh at this, but I'd say I'm pretty advanced in SQL right now, which I learned maybe three years ago. Um, and a lot of that just came down from like having like, okay, we have all this data. Like how does Matt make sense of it? Like he's not going to export it to Excel or Sheets and then build a model that's just like too cumbersome. Um, so just understanding the data side of things and reporting and all of that has definitely been a learned skill, at least in the software world and working with all this data. Um, and then on product, like I think what one of the mistakes we made is we actually just hired our first PM who starts a week from Thursday uh, in mid-April. And we're, we're super excited about that. And I think that's something that we should have done much earlier. Um, Kurt and I very much still own the kind of pitch writing, as we call it internally, for what we're going to build. And frankly, we're doing more than one thing at the company, which uh, kind of slows things down. So I think that's one thing that we've, that I've definitely learned from a hiring perspective is just better understanding where you, uh, a founder or co-founder are a bottleneck and how do you course correct or fix that bottleneck as quick as possible. Do you think there are any, are there any good ways you've seen to help to identify those? Like how can some, how can someone look at themselves and say, where am I a bottleneck? Like what are the, what are the processes they can go through? Yeah, well, at our size, you kind of just have to listen to the team because if you hire the right people, they'll certainly tell you. Um, so that's that's a, a very much a positive of growing. Um, I think for Kurt and I, we just kind of check ourselves, um, or at least I call him out and he calls me out uh, for certain things. Um, and like, yeah, the the easiest answer is kind of just like understanding your day to day and what you're doing and seeing if you can if if certain areas of the company like do you need to be doing or can you hire someone to do one of those things? So I don't think there's like an easy solution here, um, but it's really more or less like self-reflection and what your day looks like and how you can outsource certain things and things that don't need to be done by you. Um, and then you can focus on the things that really matter, like strategy and sales and all the other fun aspects that go into building a, a software company. Yeah. Which is the most exciting part of your job for you? What is the most exciting? Yeah. Uh, the most exciting for us is kind of the, I'd argue, like looking forward in the future of what we're building. Um, so we now sit in this ginormous TAM. Um, you think of the the Qualtrics of the worlds, the Medallias, even kind of SurveyMonkey's enterprise offering. And a lot of these products like are incredible executors, um, but much of their products, as they've evolved over the years, they still have this kind of foundational aspect of, of surveys. And the thing that gets me the most excited is how we're disrupting that. Um, so how can we build a better way for companies to capture this data and use it in real time? Um, so I think most exciting for us is like scaling the team, uh, executing faster, um, seeing things come to life like in weeks, not months, um, is definitely what gets me the most excited. Um, and we're going to start like very excited to jump out of the Shopify world, frankly, um, have just been in it for six or so years. Uh, as we start selling, we're working with a, a few non-Shopify merchants today and then moving into, we're about to dog food our product uh, in our onboarding flow will be powered by fairing. Um, completely white labeled, no one will actually know, but it will give us a totally different point of view and refine that, that model in our head of like, what do we need to do to update our product to continue moving into other verticals and kind of building this this 
large, exciting company that we're committed to doing. You said dog food, your product there. What does that mean? Uh, dog food is, is simply when you uh, utilize your own product internally. Um, so uh, in the SaaS world, it's like if you were to build an analytics tool, it's like, well, are you using analytics? Um, it's like the Google, a good example would be the Google Analytics team using Google Analytics to monitor Google Analytics. It's very meta. Um, and what we're going to be doing is using Faring or Question Stream product for when a customer installs Faring. Uh, we will ask them questions at onboarding and we'll have this beautiful kind of UI for our go-to-market team to use and analyze all the responses. And our our customers will be using Faring without actually knowing it. Um, so I think it's one of the best things if your company can do it is to dog food your product because it just allows you to understand the use cases so much further um, and push the product forward into actually solving more business problems. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, you know, looking back over the last few years since pivoting to Inquire, is there anything that you would go back and do differently now that you've kind of had some time to reflect on it? Not so much on the Enquire side of things. I think we probably should have raised a little bit of capital earlier, um, increased our prices earlier, frankly. We were working with $100 million plus companies paying us $10 a month, which was like cool at the time, but cool is probably not the right word. It should have been like, hey, we should increase our prices. Um, so definitely some things there. I always joke that I wish the same day delivery era of my life <laughs> was a lot quicker um, just because it was like that kind of down in the dumps startup aspect of like, we haven't found product market fit, but we're still committed to doing this. Um, so, but a lot of that gave me some resilience and just learning um, from a long-term perspective. Um, but yeah, I think raising your prices is like a, a very tactical one that everyone says, but sometimes it's hard to do. Um, like our first version, I think was $10 a month. Um, we have customers paying us thousand dollars a month now. Um, so that's very much, a big learning for us um and then just like getting hiring the right team early on it's just been such an unlock for us of getting like such talented especially on the engineering side um people to kind of go in and execute the product vision for you how did you manage to, like what was your process for kind of 100xing your prices in a few years from 10 to uh, we continue to iterate yeah we continue to iterate on the product like our question stream products um, which is like patent pending trademarked is kind of this core thing that didn't exist early on. Like the very V one of, of fairing was a single question, like no follow-ups, no other questions, like super, super simple. Like we literally embedded a form on the order status page. Um, so definitely iterating on product, um, and more or less just like building trust. Like, so we're, we're built in this very kind of resilient language called Elixir, which is a backend or, which is a functional language rather that WhatsApp and Discord are built on. And it's allowed us to, uh, frankly, never go down just from an application perspective. So if like somebody, one of our customers get, gets hit with thousands of thousands of orders in, the, in a minute or a second, rather, it doesn't affect the rest of our customers. Um, so we've been able to build a very resilient product on the kind of, are we asking questions like super, super fast API response times? It's some of these things that no one really kind of often thinks about um, and might forget about, uh, but it's allowed us to build trust with customers from a, hey, am I serving this question at this time to this customer, which has helped us definitely increase prices. 
what do you think are going to be your biggest challenges in the, in the next year or so? Uh, I think the biggest challenges, frankly, are always hiring, like getting, getting the right people on the team. Um, we're especially in 2023, we're committed to building a kind of efficient team, uh, kind of striving for high revenue to, with low headcount kind of thing. Um, so definitely committed to that. And definitely like hiring is, is always the challenge of getting the right people in the door. Um, so that's probably the biggest challenge. I think we have really good feedback from our customers. Um, we get a ton of inbounds kind of pushing us into certain directions, which is great. And it's really like, a, how do we build the team to execute on this? Matt, we're kind of, we're nearly at time. I have two final questions for you then. Uh, something I ask everyone on this show, what is something unique you think you'd never have learned without starting your business? I think the the one thing I'm super passionate about, and I don't know if this answer is the never have learned, but when I was a merchant, and even before, I spent I spent most of my day in Excel. Um, it was building models, whether it's like how we allocating capital or anything from the PNL side. And the biggest unlock for me was just learning and understanding how databases work and how SQL works. And even in early pandemic, uh, I started this blog called Quantified, which was, I, if you're using a ETL to get data, if you're using Stitch, for example, which is the CTL tool to get data out of Shopify, you pretty much only have to write all the queries once and it works with any Shopify brand because the schema is the same um, for every brand. So that, that was something that I'm like still quite obsessed with it. And like, I love talking to people about how do we kind of enable and get operators to get a little bit closer to the data and understand what they're looking for. Like we, we have this hypothesis at, at Faring that if everyone's looking at the same dashboard, um, nobody is building a competitive advantage because everyone's essentially seeing the same thing. Um, where if you, let's say, really understand how to use Google Analytics, for example, you could definitely extract more kind of alpha out of GA based on your ability to kind of utilize the tool. And GA is a, a good example, partly because it is quite, quite complex of a tool and there's many layers to it. Um, so I think that's definitely the one thing that, I don't know if I never would have learned it, but I'm most excited to learn it. I have a, a Slack community with about 400 people in it right now that's called Metric, which is really just a Slack community for D2C data enthusiasts. Um, you can, the URL is metric.community um, if anyone's interested in joining. But that's definitely something I think I'm most excited about that if I wasn't doing fairing, I'd probably be doing something in kind of the data world um, just because I think it, there's like such an unlock there. And frankly, a lot of operators don't know how to go deep in the data. Like everyone just wants the dashboard to tell them exactly what to do. And it's it's just very hard to extract kind of competitive a competitive advantage out of that. So that's why the thing I'm most excited about. And that was just me sitting next to Kurt and him being like, download this SQL client and here's how you write a select statement. And then really just exploring and diving deep thereafter. Hmm. For people who, who don't have a Kurt to sit next to and learn from, was, was there any other resources <laughs> that you found helpful to help you like get you started early on? Yeah, there's, there's, I, you could literally just Google like free SQL course. There's a ton. I think I did a few of them. None of them were probably super notable. I think that the biggest thing that people don't understand is spinning up a database and getting, and getting Shopify like commerce data into it requires zero engineering resources. Like you could literally go to Heroku or DigitalOcean, create an account, create a 
Postgres database, connect that Postgres database to Stitch, which is connect, connected to your e-commerce platform to Shopify. And then all of a sudden you have all of your Shopify data in this database, which is essentially just a glorified Excel document. Um, so I think that's the, that was the biggest unlock for me that I was like, oh, like I know nothing about this. And a lot of people that I talk to, like I get hit up all the time where people are like, hey, that blog that you wrote, like you should spin it up again because it helped me just go from zero to one. Um, so that's the the one thing I'd preach that if you're curious about these things, like the, we have a blog post on fairing that still gives a ton of traffic, which is just called how to get your Shopify data into a Postgres database. Um, and it's super, super simple. So that's, that's the one thing that I wish I knew <laughs> when I was a merchant was how easy it was. Um, and encourage everyone to kind of explore that space. Even if you're evaluating BI tools, like just having some basic knowledge on how, how it all works is going to be very helpful. Awesome. I'll try and link to that blog post in the show notes. Awesome. Final question then, where can people go to find out more about you and about fairing? Yeah. So for fairing, you can just go to fairing.co. It's F-A-I-R-I-N-G. Um, we, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search for my name, Matt Barr, B-A-H-R, or Twitter on Matt R. Barr. Um, yeah, feel free to hit me up. You can DM me on any of those platforms. Always happy to chat anything fairing, data, commerce related. Um, but thanks so much for having me on here. This has been a, a ton of fun. Hey, listeners. Ian here again. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, it would mean so much to me if you subscribed or gave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. And maybe tell a friend.